Amen, amen. Well, you may be seated again. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. Um, happy Father's Day. Um, I'm glad to see so many dads here and families uh, and all that. Hopefully uh, on your way in, um, you got yourself um, just a, a Chick-fil-A uh, gift card. They were super uh, generous to us. And somebody from our, Melissa from our hospitality team said, hey, we just want to bless um, the guys in our church. And they said, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll do free breakfast for Chick-fil-A. So today's sermon is brought to you by Chick-fil-A. Uh, they're our official sponsor of Mercy Fellowship. Um, and so yeah, it's just, I mean, when Chick-fil-A blesses you, it's like another church blessing you because it's the Lord's chicken. So um, anyway, we are glad to have you guys with us. We're going to continue our series in the book of 1 John called Abide, Life in Christ, Life with Christ. And today we're going to be in, in 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through chapter 4, verse 6. And we're going to look at three kind of significant sections of Scripture um, in this uh, series. And, and so uh, I want to say that's week eight. If you have your discipleship guide with you, and hopefully you grabbed a Scripture journal, we want to get God's Word in your hand. Uh, and so in this series, um, John, this pastor, like finishing up his ministry in his 80s, in his 90s, he loves the church, he cares about the church, and he says, hey, I, I want you to hold true to, to what is right and true and good about Jesus Christ, and I want you to have so, some assurance of your position in Christ as a son or daughter. Uh, last week, we looked at uh, a bit about what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ, and John kind of threw down some like very basic things like, like, like hey, start with not hating other Christians. And we said, if, if, if you're somebody who, when you check your heart and, and you kind of you know, um, think about what gets you angry and who gets you the most frustrated. If you hate other Christians, you might not be one. Because he says, hey, if you are in Christ and you're loved by God the Father through the love of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, then it's going to change the relationships you have with other people around you, including those other people that God has said they are part of the family. And so when you are faced with some kind of clear truths about who Jesus is and, and John wanting to regularly just kind of having people reassess their spiritual condition, then it leads to kind of some questions for us on what does it mean to actually be a Christian? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And when Jesus talks to his disciples before um, he uh, goes to the cross and, and ultimately is resurrected, um, he says, hey, to be a disciple of mine means you're going to abide in me. And, and we don't usually know what that means. And so each week I've just been defining this word for us, abide, because we don't use it often. And so abide means to not depart to be held and kept continually, to endure, to not perish, to remain as one, to survive or thrive or to actually live and enjoy life. So what Jesus is saying is, if you're going to have your identity held continually in something stable, if you're going to have life for eternity, if you're going to endure difficulty, it's going to be because you are abiding in Jesus as your savior and as your king. And so um, we know that we're loved by God because Jesus has first loved us. So last week we said that love isn't usually something we say or something we do. It's, it's we know that God has loved us in an active and pursuing way because he's a good and loving father. 
And why God has loved us is because he knows that without his love, without his pursuit of us, because of sin, we are separated from him, and that makes us spiritual orphans. And so God's response to us being spiritual orphans is to say, you know, I want you back in the family. I'm going to pursue you through Jesus. And when your faith and trust is in Jesus, then you are brought back into the family forever with some security and with some assurance. And so as we look at these three sections of Scripture, and you can turn your Bibles there, uh, 1 John 3, um, uh, starting in verse 19 to the end of the chapter. Uh, As we look at these three sections of Scripture, we're going to evaluate ourselves and evaluate how we interact with the world in three key areas. The first one's going to be our heart. The second one's going to be our lives. And then lastly, where and what do we understand as true spiritual teaching? And so um, let's just get right into the text here. 1 John 3, verse 19 through 24 says this. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him, meaning God. For whenever our heart condemns us, God's greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his command abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And so the beginning of this is to really ask ourselves, hey, it's okay to assess what your spiritual heart condition is. So as you came in this morning, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, this is an invitation to say, what's going on in my actual heart? What's going on in my actual soul? And this is a tension that's okay for us to, to, to walk into. In fact, the Bible says, hey, work out your faith with fear and trembling. So that doesn't always mean terror, but it does mean some holy reverence to actually reflect who am I before the God and creator of the universe. And so we can visit this tension, but I don't want you to live in that tension because the the heart of these verses is actually great assurance for you, great hope for you if you're in Christ. Um, The NIV translation of verse 19 says, that we should set our hearts at rest in his presence. That this, this heart work, this assessing who we are, the outcome of it should be to set our hearts at rest in his presence. He's saying we're doing that if we're holding fast to what's true, if we know what's true and right and good. And so, uh, like, you know, it's a weird phrase, like, when your heart's before the Lord. Like, I, I want to be really clear. Uh, God is over everything. God sees everything. God knows everything. He knows everything about you. God's never like, I don't know where you are. I don't know what's going on. But there's a real, real palpable sense that we're in the presence of God. Yes, when we're gathered together in worship. Yes, maybe at times when we're out in creation and experiencing how beautiful and wonderful that is. Yes, when we're with other people enjoying a good meal as a shadow of the final good meal we see at the end of the Bible. But we are most aware or attuned to his presence when we're in prayer, when we're actually quiet before the Lord where we actually give ourselves a 
moment. To not be distracted, right? I mean, we would rather do anything than be silent with our own thoughts when our thoughts start to turn to, how's my heart? How are my actual feelings? How how am I actually feeling and relating to the God who made me? So we just fill our, our eyes and our ears with just so much distraction all the time rather than actually dealing with the real hard and challenging things that are in our hearts. And so when we're in prayer, we're, we're seeking God um, for, for reliance. Um, we, we are confessing sin before him. We want to seek wisdom and provision. And so if you're going to accurately assess your heart, then you need to be in a position of prayer, meaning a heart disposition towards God. There's something in me, and I don't understand it. Lord, help me understand what's going on in here. Help me assess God, my heart. And and see, this is an essential posture because the world will tell you the opposite. The world will tell you that the most authentic source of truth is in your heart, right? I mean, from a very, very young age, right? In every, you know, kid's show, right? Follow your heart. And it's like, well, okay, yeah, but the Bible says that our hearts are deceitful amongst all things. That at times, your heart is actually not going to be the best judge, even of who you are. And so in this first verse here, there's kind of three big ideas I want you to kind of get your head around that, that we want to see um, God be the one who searches our hearts and our conscience because our hearts and conscience are not always consistent. And so we're going to give our hearts over to the Lord for, for care and for correction. You're going to the expert. You're going to the one who made your heart, who, who is the author of your story, who holds and secures your soul. And so when you are actually in the presence of God in prayer, even if you feel conflicted, even if now your heart's kind of like, ah, I don't even know if I want to assess this. Know that when you're in the presence of God, your Father, you are in the safest most secure place you could be. And it's in these verses right here, verse 19 and 20, to reassure your heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So three key truths I want you to know from this. Number one, God is a greater source of truth and grace than our heart is. See, Our hearts are incredibly inconsistent. Sometimes your heart is right to convict you of sin. Hey, I know my conscience is seared. This is wrong. I can't do this. I shouldn't do this. That's okay. Hey, that's awesome. Sometimes your heart actually agrees with a spiritual enemy that wants to see you devoured and destroyed. And so instead of conviction, your heart goes to condemnation. I'm a failure. I'm awful, I'm worthless, I'm unloved, I'm unlovable. I failed too big, my sin is too much, I I, I am worthless. And then sometimes your heart lies to you and says, you don't have any sin? No, you are perfect just the way you are. In fact, actually, the more, if you would just listen to me, your heart, you'll do better, I promise. And it'll go so great for everybody else around you when you are the center of your universe. Number two. Number one was God is greater source of truth and grace than our heart is. Two, God is a kinder, more merciful to us than we are able to be to ourselves. See, like I said, your heart can condemn you and that leads you to shame 
and slavery and isolation. You start to look inward and you keep looking inward and you keep looking inward and, and then maybe you're like, well, I'm gonna go to, go to counseling or get a therapist and then you just keep looking inward and keep looking inward and, and lo and behold, all the problems in the world are everybody else's fault. It's government, it's your dad, it's your family, it's the community you're in, it's whatever, it's your church, whatever. All the problems are out there. You are not the source of any of the problems. So you keep isolating yourself more and more and more. And what happens is you have an entire worldview built around how great you are, only you're not built to bear that weight. And so it leads you to shame when it ultimately comes crumbling down. And so then you find yourself condemned in shame, enslaved to sin, and isolated. And what God, our loving Father, perfect Father, is calling us to is a life of forgiveness, of fellowship with other people, and ultimately freedom from sin in Christ. See, it says God is greater than our hearts. Like when our hearts condemn us, it says God is greater than our hearts. Number three, God knows us better than we know ourselves. Like I said, our, our heart's deceitful above all things. So, so when we, we, we might think we know our heart's desires and motives, right? You're like, no, no, I'm a good person. Like, I, I know I'm just trying to do the work so, so that I can, I can be the best version of me possible. Hey, that, that's a great sentiment. But God actually, it says, knows everything. He knows your deepest heart motives. He knows you better than you know yourself. And that can be incredibly terrifying and that can be incredibly like, like exposing and, and, and vulnerable because, oh no, God knows me better than I know myself. And the purpose of all of that, his grace to you, how kind he is to you, he's, he's less, believe it or not, condemning to you than your own heart can be at times. And, he, and you know, he knows every motive you've ever had. He says, yes, I still want to pursue you and I still want to move your heart to a place of peace in my presence, to a place of rest in my presence. God knows us greater and his grace is greater because when it says he knows everything, he knows everything about you. He knows every sin you've committed. He knows every way you've failed, every bit of shame you have, everything that's been done wrong to you, everything that makes you feel dirty. And he says, that's my boy. That's my girl. You're my, I know you better than you know yourself. And I want you in the family. And I want you to walk in new life. He's more merciful to us than we are to ourselves so that we can have rest. And so John in these verses says, so you can pray with confidence. Like asking the Holy Spirit to give you conviction of sin at times, but also comfort in the good news of the gospel. That your spiritual condition isn't dependent on what you have done, but what Jesus Christ has done in your place. Because Jesus has paid for your sin on the cross that gives you an opportunity to be part of the family and to no longer be defined by what you've done or what's been done to you, but what's been done for you in Jesus Christ. And so when you're praying and you're reflecting on your heart condition, at certain points in these verses, he's like, hey, if, you, if, if you're actually like living out the commands of God, if you actually do love Jesus and love other people, he's like, be encouraged. Like that means God's working in and through you. And, and 
Let that confidence lead you not to, to cockiness, but let it lead to greater boldness, to ask God for greater blessing and fruitfulness and effectiveness and, and obedience even so we can have confidence before God that if we actively are keeping his, his commands, we know it's not because we're the hero. It says, you'll know then that God is abiding in you. And, and how God abides, lives, dwells in you is in and through the Holy Spirit. That, that you actually have the Holy Spirit in you if you're a Christian. That means you have the power and the presence of the third member of the Holy Trinity in you. And so that means you can actually walk in a bit of freedom. You can walk in a bit of joy. You've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then it says, then you walk in that. In verse 22, it says that our response of obedience actually pleases God. Like, yes, you're not defined by your sin. And you're not um, saved by your obedience. But don't play some mental or theological game that says, well, I never have to obey the commands of God because Jesus paid it all. No, Jesus paid it all, so you can now obey the commands of God, and God's like, that's my boy. That's my girl. Like, he, he loves you. And he, he loves you, and when you walk in obedience, he's pleased. It doesn't mean that God's low-grade angry at you when you don't, but it does mean that all that John has been teaching over and over and over throughout this sermon that he's written to this church is that there's greater life and greater joy available to you as a Christian when you are walking in the ways, words, and will of God than when you walk in the ways and the words of the world that is opposed to God. So God being pleased with you, that's that's a blessing. That's That's a joy to know our Father is there cheering us on as we walk in obedience and he's there loving with grace and and mercy when we don't. And so this leads to really an understanding of kind of words we don't use that often but, but in the Christian life with our doctrine and practice. What do we believe and how do we now live? God abides in us as we abide in his commands. And he said these, these commands, I mean, man, he makes it so simple here uh, in verse 22, verse 23 rather. This is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another. And that drills down to what's been reiterated over and over in the Bible. The, 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 the law of God drills down to love God and love other people. And so if there's anything in you that says, I, I love the Lord Jesus, I have affection and care for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Then what John is saying is go ahead and feel a sense of assurance that you're held by God and the Holy Spirit dwells in you. See, I say the Holy Spirit. Um, it's uh, in verse um, 24. Um, it says uh, that he abides in us by the Spirit. If you notice in your Bibles, if the Spirit's in caps. That means it's a proper noun. There's a little bit of English um, education for you there. So it's talking about a person. It's talking about not, um, you know, some ethereal force, but it's talking about the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, as I said. And when we use the word holy, that word holy means clean, righteous, good, set apart. And so, The Bible here is being clear that this is when the Holy Spirit dwells in you. 
And so when we talk about the Holy Spirit, that word holy, like I said, pure and set apart and good and righteous and life-giving is a modifier which implies there are spiritual beings and spiritual realities that are not pure, that are not good, that are not righteous, that are not life-giving but life-taking. And so that requires some wisdom and some discernment on what these dispositions should be towards these spirits and and towards spiritual realities. How do we interact as we pursue spiritual life with God? And that leads to 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says this. Beloved, he's talking to Christians, do not believe every spirit, lowercase, but test the spirits, lowercase, to see whether they're from God. Why? For many false prophets have gone out into the world. What John is saying here to the church is not everything spiritual is good. Just because something's spiritual doesn't make it good. And, and maybe you're like, I'm actually not that spiritual at all. Like, like we are in a very, very materialistic world. What can we see? What can we taste? What can we smell? What can we touch, right? And, and, and we like those experiences. And, and at certain points, when we pursue an ultimately materialistic life, what, can I, what pleasure can I have? What can I enjoy? What can I do? Those stop satisfying us in eternal ways. They're enjoyable for a moment, right? You walked in today, um, you, you walked into the great room, you grabbed a maple bar, you bit into the maple bar, and you were like, yes, and amen. Why isn't there bacon on it? But I'll take it anyway, right? And, and you're like, this is good. And now here you are 20 minutes later, and that sugar is lulling you into a coma, right? It doesn't satisfy. So we're just consuming spiritual carbs all the time. Everything we we do materialistically has an end life and it fades. The most enjoyable experience, the greatest achievement, the the, the moments of of joy, the, the moments of experiencing God's creation, they're all fleeting. And that is because our souls actually have, as cliche as you've heard it said before, actually have a God-shaped hole in them. That your soul is built for eternity. Your body's not. And some of you are young and you're like, no, I'm good. And some of us are in our middle age and we're like, no, we get it. Right? This is not built forever. But you are made as an individual, as an embodied soul. So God cares about your mind. He cares about you relationally. He cares about your emotions. He cares about your body and how you take care of it. And he cares about your soul. And so when we're trying to satisfy ourselves intellectually and relationally and emotionally and physically, and we're never addressing the soul, we're not going to be satisfied. And so there's this craving that is a good craving to have, to say, I want deep soul satisfaction. And that soul satisfaction can only come from God. And so we begin to to search out, okay, I, I want something more than the material world. But we need to be wise and cautious about what we consume spiritually or intellectually because not everything spiritual is good. Not everything is good, and so we test it to know if it's actually true. Like the Bible actually cares about ultimate objective truth. That we live in such a pluralistic world 
where everybody believes that they have their own truth. And really, if you're the most authentic you can be, it's what's your truth. And the challenge is, if everybody has their own truth, when we go into the town square together or when we're interacting with one another, if my truth says this and your truth says this, well, now they're in competition with one another and they can't both be true. So there is an ultimate truth. And because we're so pluralistic, you know, we say things like, particularly here in the Northwest, like we should just coexist, right? There's, there's no exclusive truth claims, which in and of itself, you need to know logically, is an exclusive truth claim. To say there's no exclusive truth is you claiming an exclusive truth. And furthermore, if you're like, all religions lead to the same place and they all basically believe the same things, you are now at odds with all of those religions because they all have exclusive truth claims. So you're not like above or whatever. You've just like now honed in your own little deal. And so I want to be clear. We should be kind to one another and we should interact with one another. And like we are in a pluralistic society. But what we act like spiritually is that somehow it's okay for us to go to like a spiritual food court or like a spiritual buffet. And we just kind of walk through the buffet and we're like, yeah, I want this and I want that. Except most of us spiritually uh, are like kids. I remember the first time uh, I was at a buffet. I loved buffets when I was a kid. I don't even know if they have those anymore. I'm sure COVID killed the buffets, right? Everybody can't be touching the food, right? Um, But like, I loved buffets when I was a kid and I would go through and, and what I would end up with is a plate full of macaroni and cheese, some chicken strips and pudding. Man, when you got to pudding at the end and you can just scoop it all you want, that's great. Only that is a terrible spiritual diet. And that's what we do. We just take the things that feel good that we like. And, 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 you know, and, we, and we start to get filled up on things that are not good and then we don't have room for actual what is, things that are edifying. So uh, a few years ago, gosh, it was like six, seven, eight years ago now, my wife and I, um, we were in Miami uh, and we went to, the, for the first time, actually the only time at this point, we gotta go back. We went to a Brazilian steakhouse. Who's been to a Brazilian steakhouse? Oh yeah, if, yeah, there we go. Troy is up there, he's like, yes, he knows. Well, I had never been and I was a rookie and I walk into the Brazilian steakhouse and they give you a plate at this one and they send you through the salad bar. And, and so I go through the salad bar and I'm like loading up and then they have this like, this whole like buffet line of like carbs, you know, and I was like, and they were good carbs. Like, it was like, oh, couscous. Like, I love couscous, and I'm scooping it up. And, and, and I look at it on all my buddies' plates, and they had, like, nothing on their plate. And they're like, don't you know what's about to happen? I was like, yeah, man, I got, I got bread, and I've got salad, and I've got carbs. Like, no, no, guys are coming out with swords full of meat, and they just keep slicing over and over and over. And they give you a red card or a green card, and the green card says more meat, and the red card is for quitters, okay? And so... Like, you know, like, this is great. But, but I had already, lo- I was such a rookie, I loaded up on things that, 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 like, they were filling but didn't satisfy. And it, I missed out on something that was good and, and, and nourishing. And so that's what happens when we load up on things that aren't spiritually good for us. Only let me take this analogy one step farther. The spiritual buffet you go on in this world isn't just like pudding and carbs and couscous and salad. But instead, it's like going through a buffet that has things that look like candies, but, but are really candy-laced fentanyl. They're not actually neutral. They may look good. They may be enticing. They might even feel good for a moment. 
but spiritually they will lead you to decay and they will lead you to destruction. And so John's saying, no, it is your job, Christian, to test what is spiritual and not just based on your own inner feelings, not just based on does somebody else say that it's true. No, see, we, we mistake sincerity of belief for believing in something that's actually true. We mistake um, passion around belief for believing that something is actually true. We want assurance that comes from excitement and we mistake enthusiasm and passion for truth and real power. And so John wants us to reset and, and, and go through an actual test for spiritual matters. He says you have to test things that are spiritual because he says many false prophets have gone out in the world. 2 Corinthians 11.4, uh, the Apostle Paul warns his church, uh, excuse me, in Corinth, and says that there's another spirit, different Jesus, and a different gospel that's contrary to the truth. That you're going to hear things that sound good, but aren't actually true. Similarly, James, the half-brother of Jesus, reminds us in his letter that there is wisdom that is from above, meaning from God, and there's wisdom that is below, meaning it is from Satan and from the world. One's good, one's bad. Like that, that's as clear as the Bible makes it. And so, in other words, just because someone claims spiritual power and insight doesn't mean that that spirit is empowering them is actually from God. And so John's telling the church, and he's telling us, and I'm telling you, we shouldn't just blindly be believing everything that we're taught or told just because it happens to be spiritual. It's a call to discernment and what I want to call healthy doubt, healthy skepticism. And the reason I say healthy doubt and healthy skepticism is because it's doubt that says, I want the right answer, not just I don't want any answers. Right? There's doubt that's popular that leads to deconstruction, that leads to, um, to walking away from the faith and thinking that somehow that's going to lead you to greater life. This is a healthy doubt to say, before I consume this, I want to make sure I know that this is healthy and edifying. Before I believe this, I want to know that it's true, not just is it true in here, but is it objectively true? And Christians make an exclusive truth claim. We believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one goes to the Father except through him. And so you can doubt an answer, but want an answer, and know that the answer should be pointing you back to Jesus. And so what's the test? What's the standard on how we assess spiritual matters? What standard should we be claiming teachers of God's word to meet? Because there's error in the world and there's false teachers in the church. And so we need wisdom and discernment, not just like, hey, does this sound Christian? Or was it from a Christian influencer or a Christian author? And so he gives us this test in 1 John 4, verses 2 and 3. He says this. So he says, test the spirits. He says, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. So what this means is doctrine, what we believe is true, actually matters. And the reason doctrine matters is because sound doctrine helps us assess what is true from what is false, what is edifying and what is an error. And so um, 
My, my good friend, uh, Pastor Ryan Williams, um, uh, he said this to me years ago, that um, you know, sometimes people use this phrase, doctrine that divides. Like, I don't want to talk about doctrine because that will get, will get divided. And Ryan said, doctrine divides is a misleading statement because doctrine actually defines shepherds from wolves and sheep from goats. So what you believe and what's being taught and who the hero is actually matters. And so I don't want us to think about things like doctrine as like some prison that we live in, but on guardrails that keep us safe as we go on the way. Um, yesterday I was over in Wenatchee. My son and I were over there and we drove back across Highway 2. And some of you know when you're kind of around the pass, right? It gets a little, a little wily. Like at no point was I like, I don't know, that hard left turn says 45 miles an hour. I, I, that seems like a really harsh doctrine. I'm just going to do it at 70 and see what happens. Right? You know the turn, right? Where it looks like it's going to fall off into the edge of the world. Right? I'm, I'm glad. My wife's scared now just thinking about it. She's done this drive with me several times. And she maybe did think I went 70. I, I, I tried at 50, not, not 45. Okay. But like, like, I'm glad those guardrails are there. I'm glad when there's those big dash yellow signs to let you know a hard turn's coming. You better be prepared or you're going to fall in the ditch. That's what good doctrine does for us. And so if you want to know if the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit um, is what's speaking or what's teaching or is leading, you start with Jesus. In, in verse 2, uh, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses, another translation uh, isn't that Jesus Christ has come, is Jesus the Christ who's come in the flesh. And so the test for true spiritual teaching and what is good and right for us is what does it say about Jesus what does it say Jesus is? Or who does it say Jesus is? So everything spiritual that doesn't hold to the truth of who Jesus is, is not from God. So it might work. It might sound good. It might be, it might be leading you to places of healing. But if it's not from Jesus, it's not going to lead you to ultimate life. If it doesn't point to Jesus exclusively, it's not from the God, the creator of the universe. Truth starts with Jesus. Error starts when you start jacking with Jesus. When you start messing around with who Jesus is. And so there's plenty of other religions and spiritualities and worldviews that, I mean, they don't even talk about Jesus at all. Um, I'll just say that they are ungodly and false. And some of it's easy to discern, right? Um, frankly, it's, it's kind of odd to have to say this, but like Satanism's gotten pretty popular recently. There's like satanic temples and like there's you know, all sorts of satanic influencers online. And like, so that one's usually like, okay, that's not on the team, right? We're not on team Satan. Like, like really, the, the, like the guy, like the, the whole thing looks like a goat. Like that's not our team. No, that's not our team. Scientology's an easy one. Like, right, we just kind of like, that's a joke. Works for Tom Cruise. But like, besides that, we're not doing it, right? And, and, and so like, those are easy. But what gets more challenging is when there's actually teachings that look or sound like they're Christian. And the more and more it looks and sounds Christian, the, the worse the errors are because it's not just saying, hey, there's this other weird way. It's not with Jesus. It's like, no, here's a way that's still with Jesus, but it's just a little off. And so this happens a lot in the world. See, it's not enough to just say that, that you believe Jesus is the Son of God, right? Um, or that Jesus is a good teacher. Gandhi believed that Jesus was a great teacher, just not the moral stand, or from a moral standpoint, but didn't trust Jesus as God. And so 
When you're like, what's the Antichrist? What's an Antichrist spirit? Like, you know, this is a fun Father's Day topic on a gray Sunday, right? You're like, well, sometimes it's not just flat out against Jesus. Usually it's just distorting Jesus. An Antichrist spirit doesn't need you to, to deny Jesus. It just needs you to believe in a distorted view of who Jesus is. And so we gotta get Jesus right first. Jesus is a real man. He's not an idea. He's really born, really lived, really died, really rose again. He's a historical figure. He's not a myth. He's not a legend. He was Jewish. He was ethnically Middle Eastern, which is, this makes it so funny when I see pictures of like a blonde Jesus or an American Jesus. Jesus was a Jewish guy in the Middle East. That's who he was. He had half-brothers and sisters because we believe in the virgin birth. He grew up with them. He worked as a carpenter in a small town. He had friends. He was obscure in his public ministry. He was revered by many. He was reviled by many. And he was rejected by many, even when he was respected by others. He blessed many, and he was betrayed by those who were closest to him. Jesus was a real man who got hungry and ate. He got tired. He slept. He played. He prayed. And oh, did Jesus party. We know Jesus' party because the religious people were like, you, that, your Jesus is a drunkard. We're like, no, 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 no. Jesus just knows how to party. Like, he, he's perfect. He's sinless. And he didn't achieve perfection. He embodied it. He embodies it. And we also believe that Jesus is really God. He is the Christ, and he's fully God, that, that he was miraculously conceived, like I said, in the virgin birth. That matters. Um, if you are uh, a follower uh, in the um, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you don't believe that. You don't believe in the virgin birth. You don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You believe that Jesus is a son of a God, and that God showed up and met with Mary, and then Jesus showed up. Okay? Jesus, Mary, not the right Jesus. People that come to your door, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe that Jesus is actually really the archangel Gabriel. And so it's important for us to say we are historic Orthodox Christians. Like for a couple thousand years, there are people that say, no, we believe in the virgin birth. We believe Jesus is fully man and fully God. Uh, and so uh, I want to be clear, like, I, I'm not like, let's go flamethrow at all the other religions. I just want to say, we need to know who Jesus is. And so we can partner with anyone. Like you want to serve the city and you want to do backpacks in the schools and you want to form some political alliances for the good of the, the community. All these, that's great. Partner with anybody. But be careful with who you pray with. Because they may be even praying in the name of Jesus, but not to the Jesus of the Bible. See, um, Paul says it this way, writing to this church in Galatia. He says, in, in chapter one, verses six and eight, says, I'm astonished that you so quickly deserted him who called you in the grace of Christ and turned to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there's some who trouble you and they distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. So this is Paul telling a church, hey, People are coming around talking about Jesus and they're saying they have these spiritual experiences. If they're not talking about the Jesus of the Bible, if they're distorting and changing the gospel of grace, 
through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, based on God's word alone, to the glory of God alone, then they're not leading you to life. They're leading you to death. And so, like, cards on the table. I'm not somebody that's had a lot of wild spiritual experiences. But, like, that doesn't mean I don't believe they happen. Or don't happen, rather. Like, if you know how the LDS church started, right? There's, there's Joseph Smith, and he goes out into uh, the woods in New York, and he, he's claimed to be met by an angel, and then these tablets, and then he gets the Book of Mormon, all these different things. Like, hey, full disclosure, Joe Smith, Joe Rogan, they've maybe seen some spiritual things, okay? But they're not talking about Jesus. They're not talking about the Jesus of the Bible, I say Rogan because sometimes he's like, yeah, man, I just did some ayahuasca and then these spiritual things happen. Like, cool. Dude, I like your podcast sometimes, bro, but like, let's get you to Jesus. And it's so wild, right? Because we, we just so want to, to partner and, be, and have anybody affirm anything in our worldview that sometimes we'll accept things that are spiritual that aren't ultimately true or edifying. See, Jesus is eternal. Each one of us, each you and I, we have a beginning and an end. Once we were and then there wasn't. Jesus is eternal. He's from heaven. He's from God the Father. Fully God, fully man. He arrives into history. The Jehovah's Witnesses, when they come to your door, they'll tell you that Jesus was the first created being. We're like, no, no. We, we believe what John says, uh, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus came in the flesh. Not as a phantom, not as a spirit. So sometimes people are like, well, no, Jesus was just kind of a, a ghost idea, right? Well, if that's the case, then Jesus isn't our sacrifice for our sins. If, if Jesus isn't a real person, then he's not our great high priest who's been tempted in every way we are yet without sin. He didn't really suffer. The cross and all that he did was some sort of cosmic one-man play. Nobody likes a one-man play, right? Right, you ever get invited to the theater and it's like, it's a one-man show? You're like, no, that's gonna be weird. If Jesus wasn't a man, no death in our place, and he's just this ghosty ghost, that means no atonement, no substitute for our sins in our place, and we have no hope. So one of the ways we assess false teaching, false teaching makes the cross of Christ smaller. I don't wanna talk about that. I like, I like Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, not Jesus on the cross, not re- and certainly not resurrected living Jesus. Um, this is what happens when you say Jesus didn't really die, but he was maimed and looked like he died. That's what, what Islam teaches, that Jesus went to the cross. He was up there, got beat up real bad, got stuck in the hole for a while, came back out, just ugh, groggy. So he swooned. Well, that's not a big deal then. Like, good job, Jesus, you didn't actually die. False teaching makes the cross smaller. The LDS church says that the atonement happened when Jesus sweat blood in Gethsemane. And, and again, the cross gets smaller. Jesus dying on the cross for our sins in some progressive so-called Christian circles says, well, I mean, if God's a father and Jesus is a son and the cross is the cross, then they throw on this horrible blasphemous phrase, that's divine child abuse. 
Well, no, we believe in a good, loving Father. We believe that Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. That Jesus says, God, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I trust you, God the Father. And we know as well that in Hebrew it teaches, it says, for the joy set before him, Jesus despised the shame and endured the cross. That Jesus was motivated by joy, by you overcoming shame, and by you being part of the family. He willingly went to the cross for you so that you could have life. So false teaching and spirituality, it can lead to things like, you know, false sex and cults like the LDS and, and the Jehovah's Witness, but it rises up within and infects the church, and so it just starts to say, no, no, we can still be Christians, but the person we really worship is the person in the mirror every morning. You're enough. You're perfect just the way you are. You just need to bring your full authentic self to the table rather than his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Jesus Christ and his cross is sufficient. His grace is sufficient for you, meaning enough, more than enough. That you are, yes, beloved. And you take up your cross daily to walk as a disciple of Jesus with gratitude, yes, but not pride, but in humility. Last verses as we close here. First John 4, 4 through 6 says this. Little children, you're from God and have overcome them, meaning the false teachers. For he who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. They're from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We're from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever's not from God doesn't listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So what Paul is doing here is he's saying, or John rather is doing here, he's saying, hey, you want to abide, you want to live, you want to be held, like, like stick to the truth. Know that the world has a view that is opposed to the God of the Bible, that's opposed to Jesus. He's saying, hey, we don't expect the world that is spiritually dead and dying to follow the creator God who's the source of light and life. And so I want to be clear, we're not going to go on a spiritual holy war, right? Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but Satan, rulers, principalities, spirits. So don't go flamethrowing and torching uh, all of your non-believing friends or, 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 or your Mormon friends or whatever. Like, be nice to the people when they come to the door or do what most of us do and like, like just pretend you're not home, Right? It's really hard. They always come when I'm washing the car and so I'm outside and I'm like, I've got a hose. You know, like, don't get too close. No, like, those who have an antichrist spirit, like, like, pray for them. They're in spiritual bondage. Pray that they would know and love and serve the God of truth and grace and mercy that comes in Jesus. And then know, like, you don't need to be afraid of these other worldviews and spiritualities, and here's why. Yeah, they're wrong. Yeah, they're evil. Some of them are from the pit of hell. But where's our confidence? Is it because we're great spiritual soldiers and you're going to make, no. It says, he who's in, the, in, in you, meaning God, is greater than he who's in the world. 
Meaning you have the Holy Spirit in you. If you're gonna endure, it's because you're abiding and being held by God, the Holy Spirit. That God overcomes all that is evil in the world. He is ultimately victorious. So that should give us confidence. It should give us some boldness. It should give us a sense of assurance that the Holy Spirit's greater than any spirit that seeks to place you in spiritual bondage. That shouldn't lead you to bravado, but it should lead you to boldness. That Satan is a defeated enemy. That God has overcome and will ultimately overcome in his return. And so I want to be clear, everyone is an image bearer of God and worthy of dignity and respect. That doesn't mean all spiritual teaching is worthy of respect or needs to be revered. Some things need to be mocked because they're worthless. Some things need to be condemned because they lead to condemnation. Some ideas and thoughts need to be combated because they're leading people to destruction. As I said, our battle's not against flesh and blood. Know that God is the one that ultimately wins the battles. And so our battle is, yes, I mean, I I love people that are good and winsome and can debate uh, and mix it up a little bit. Maybe that's not you. But maybe your battle is going to be more like, I just need to be reminded what's true. And so John's saying, hey, hold on to true spiritual teaching. You don't need to fight and debate everybody else, but you do need to know what's true. Right? You've heard this analogy before, I'm sure, but like secret service agents, when they're looking at, um, you know, how to spot counterfeit bills, all they do is study, like, what real $100 bills look like so they can spot a fake. What John's calling us to, and what I'm calling you, is to spend time in God's Word, nourishing on the truth so you can spot what's false right away. Like, it's Father's Day. Everything I'm wearing from head to toe is from Costco, Okay? And I go to Costco, and when I walk around Costco, uh, I'm there multiple times a week because I love samples, okay? And, and, and I go, and, and I'll tell you, like, like I, there's certain samples I love, and there's certain samples I don't go anywhere near. When I walk by, and they're like, do you want to try an Impossible Burger? I say no. I go full Ron Swanson. And I, I, don't, even, I don't even look at them. I don't want to even be tempted. Because you look, and it's like it's got a sizzle, and it's like, no, that's a modifier. If you put a modifier in something, that means it's not true. Impossible means it's not impossible to taste good. Okay? It's not real meat. And the reason I know that is because I like eating burgers. And so I want you to eat some spiritual meat so you can spot what's fake. And that's what John is saying to do. And so he says, listen to me. I'm not saying, hey, listen to Chris. John's one of the 12 apostles. He's saying, listen to us. We spent time with Jesus and we wrote down what he said and we wrote down what we saw. So read God's word so you know the truth. And yeah, there's great preachers, but like you assess them on who's the hero of the story. Do they point people to Jesus? Are they, are they preaching and teaching God's word? And then just be like, and they're people, so they'll probably screw up some way too. When I was a kid, or when I was a kid, ha, I feel like we were kids when we had kids. When we started having our kids, I was like, oh man, I got all these preachers I like. I want to name all my kids after that. And then we had a bunch of girls that couldn't do that. Um, and, then I was like, and then I'm like, I'm really glad because half of them are disqualified now. That'd be really awkward. If you named your kid somebody, you're like, I don't listen to their sermons anymore. If you're going to name your kid somebody spiritual, wait for them to have died 
And then you're like, yeah, they had a good run. Right? You know, you can, you can name your kid RC now. You can name your kid Keller. Like, it's all good. Know what's true, guys. Read, memorize, meditate on God's word. Let it shape and form you in ways so that you know what's true and you know what's false. And then, and then you pray. And if the Holy Spirit speaks in and through you, it's going to always point you back to Jesus. It's always going to affirm and confirm what's already in God's word. And so we don't need to walk in fear because he who's in you is greater than he who's in the world. And so listen to preachers and teachers who tell you that the way to the crown is through the cross. That don't make the cross small, but point to the cross as the greatest moment in history. And that's what we're going to do now as we shift into worship. If your faith and trust is in Jesus, we invite you at some point in the next couple songs, uh, pray, sure, and then come forward and take communion, remembering Jesus' body broken for you in the bread, his blood shed for you in the cross. And be reminded that Jesus is the hero of your story. And if your faith and trust and worldview has been in something else or someone else besides Jesus, and today you're like, no, no, okay, I've done the spiritual assessment. I'm believing something false. I want to hold fast to the truth. Then place your faith and trust in Jesus. And we believe the next step for you is to be baptized, to pledge allegiance to Jesus as your king, to, to trust him as your savior. As you go into the water, you're reminded of Jesus' death and burial. As you come out, you identify with his resurrection and new life. Um, we're going to have an outdoor service in, in a couple weeks. Um, it, it, Lord willing, it should be, weather should be nice, middle of July, and, and we hope to baptize some people in Lake Stevens. And so, you know, if that's you, we'd love to, to talk with you about that. And just be reminded that Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we can trust God, we can trust the spirit of truth, we can reject error, walk in boldness, as we simply trust Jesus.